I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back along to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of, of course, the 90 Min Football family. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simiou, coming to you on this Sunday afternoon to look back on what was a disappointing uh, performance, I think, uh, from the Arsenal and subsequent result uh, off of the back of that pre-season friendly against Manchester United. We're going to break it all down on this episode of the show because although it is just a pre-season friendly, and I think you always have to kind of reiterate that point because often emotion kicks in and people, I think, overreact to the outcome of these types of fixtures. But it's impossible to deny, I think, on this instance, that there is a lot of talking points to come off the back of it. Now, let me be clear from the beginning. I'm not going to sit here and slag people off. I'm not going to sit here and throw my toys out of the pram. I'm not going to sit here and lose my mind because of what happened in the preseason friendly. I don't think anybody should. But what I do think is that based on what we saw last night, there are a few kind of elephants in the room that we kind of need to discuss. And there are a few decisions, I think, that Mikel Arteta has to make now that could define how well our season goes, that could play a massive role in whether or not we're able to first and foremost sustain the levels of performance that we showed last season and kick on. We talk a lot about strength in depth, something that Arsenal have been crying out for for a long, long time. We've got more of that now. But now you get a different challenge and now you find different complications with regards to how you fit everybody in. You want to rotate. That's the whole purpose of building the squad up uh, to a kind of bigger size. But you need to rotate effectively, which is an art and a skill in itself. So there's so much to get into. We're going to talk through it all. We're going to talk about the performance in general. We're going to talk about the goals that we conceded, which were obviously really, really poor. We'll talk about that midfield balance, which I think is one of the big, big questions to come out of this one. Although it is something we've discussed on various occasions already. We're going to talk Eddie Nketiah, Kieran Tierney, Thomas Partey, Bukayo Saka, Yuri and Timber. We're going to be reacting to Mikel Arteta's press conference. And we'll touch on some news with regards to Arsenal's uh, rumoured target, Mohamed Kudus as well. So we've got loads and loads to get into on this edition of the Chronicles of Aguna. And I'm delighted to see so many of you with me uh, in the live chat. Uh, let's say hello to Skills. We've got Mario, who's with us. Raphael, uh, Richie, Prince of Somalia is here. We've got uh, Trev. We've got 49 undefeated. Trevor Bibbins, Prince Will. Uh, we've got Viju. We've got so many of you. Uh, we've got Across the Pond Sports Talk as well. Jay is here. Kanan. Um, great to see so many of you in the live chat, as I say. Now, first and foremost, I've got to get this out of the way. So the reason this podcast is coming to you later than I would have normally done it off the back of a match is because I was out last night. I didn't see the game uh, live. I have since watched it all back. I managed to find a way to record it off of MUTV, which isn't ideal, um, but I couldn't record it off of the Arsenal website. And so I figured how am I going to be able to record this game and be able to watch it in full? Because you know what happens with these preseason games, right? You come away from the game, you want to look back on some of the key moments and you go on YouTube and you look for the highlights and at best you get a two, three minute package. That isn't going to do me any favours, is it? So I figured last night the best way was to was to record it off of MUTV. I had to listen to their biased commentary and all the rest of it, but it allowed me at least to watch the game uh, back in full. Um, anyway, so um here we are um you know looking back on that game and and ready to reflect on it and um and as i say i missed it last night not because i just decided to go out on a jolly i was i was out on a stag do a bachelor party for our friends across the pond and being the best man there wasn't really much chance of me getting out of it and it would have been wrong of me to do that for a pre-season friendly if we're talking about a premier league game i think we might look at it differently in fact i would never allow uh, the party to take place on the day of a Premier League game, for starters. But that's why I didn't watch the game live. That's why I was a little bit quiet on social media and all of the rest of it. We did have it on at one stage, um, on the phone, on the table, in one of the bars that we were at. Uh, so we saw bits and pieces of the second half at the time. But, you know, it's one of them ones where you're trying not to let everybody know that your head is on the football. 
and instead you're trying to play the whole yeah 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 let's have a party thing but you can't really truly relax at these things and really let your hair down and enjoy yourself until you know what the arsenal result is and what the outcome is um lots and lots of people uh, getting involved in the live chat particularly with regards to the mutv commentary look I, i'm sure they feel exactly the same way if and when uh, they have to watch commentary coming through uh, another club's channels. It's just the way it goes. Club media is going to be biased, isn't it? Um, and normally it's going to be more positive than negative, which then in turn makes it, if you're listening to an opposition team's club commentary, perhaps even more infuriating than it should be or than it would normally be um, if you were watching just sort of neutral commentary and all the rest of it. But yeah, uh, it is what it is. I've sat down. I've watched the game this morning. I'm on about my 15th cup of coffee. I cannot remember the last time I got home at 6 a.m. Oh, my word. I, and I'm not even drunk. Like I'm not, you know, people think, oh, my God, he came home at 6 a.m. He's got a massive hangover. I genuinely do not have a hangover from drink. Did have a few, but didn't go crazy. It's just tiredness, man. You get in at 6 a.m., you get into bed by about 6.15, 6.20, and then at 7.15, your kids start waking up. And you're just like, oh. And of course, they got to come into your room, and, you know, of course, they got to ask for your attention, and then you're kind of relying on their mum taking them out of the bedroom and, and taking them away and occupying them. Thankfully, she did that for me this morning and allowed me to get some much-needed sleep, because without that, we wouldn't be doing... Uh, a podcast right now. Uh, big shout out to Deepesh, who was out last night. He says, we're getting old. We are indeed, man. Uh, we're really, really getting old. But it could be worse. We could be Lucas this morning. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Good times. Right. Anyway, let's get on to this game then. So really, really physical encounter was probably my first takeaway, uh, having watched it back. This is why I have a problem with Arsenal playing Premier League rivals in pre-season friendlies. And I'm not just saying this because we lost yesterday. I know people will refer back to last season where we spanked Chelsea and everybody talked about what a positive impact that had on us moving forward and how it helped set the tone and all the rest of it um, for the season that was to come. I just generally, I don't like the idea of playing against a rival in pre-season for a couple of reasons, because first of all, you don't really want to give up your game tactically. I know they'll analyse you and they'll study you and it's very, very difficult to keep things under wraps. But particularly when you're experimenting in pre-season, I don't think you want to be doing that against direct rivals. I also think that there is an added level of physicality in these types of fixtures that you wouldn't get in a normal pre-season friendly. For example, against Barcelona, who of course we play next week. Although there is some talk about whether that game's going to go ahead because of a, a breakout of illness within the Barcelona camp. The reports today say that both sides are still confident that that's going to happen. But just keep an eye on that if you're heading over to LA uh, for, for that fixture. Um, but yeah, the idea of playing Premier League rivals generally, I don't like it. And I think that there were times in that game where Manchester United just overstepped that mark in terms of physicality a little bit. And listen, they're entitled to do that, right? They're competitive. They want to get themselves into some sort of rhythm ahead of the new season. They're playing against the rival. As I say, there is going to be that little bit of an edge to this type of game. It is a preseason friendly, of course. But when you play in a big old stadium like that with a capacity crowd and, you know, whatever you say about football, soccer in the US, they do make big occasions of these things, even if they are preseason friendlies it probably becomes difficult to remember the environment that you're actually playing the match in. If you're one of the players on the pitch, you probably do get drawn into it or sucked into the occasion and all the rest of it. But for me, it's the referee's responsibility, not, not the opposition. It's the referee's responsibility to make sure that he keeps a lid on the game. And, you know, there were a few challenges, but how he allowed Lissandro Martinez's one on Bakayo Saka to be anything other than a red card or how he deemed that to be anything other than a red card was beyond me. And like, yeah, you know, that was my big, big frustration for that. But in terms of I talk about physicality, I'm not just talking about challenges flying in. I'm talking about Man United being quicker to balls. I'm talking about them being stronger in duels. I'm talking about them being um, just that little bit sharper uh, than Arsenal were. And, and that's a concern for me. Um, it is a worry. I know we've got players at different stages of their pre-seasons in terms of when they came back, in terms of, 
how much exposure they've had since returning and all the rest of it. And Arteta kind of touched on that in the post-match press conference. But for me, the, the physical level in comparison to Manchester United yesterday was just not there. And that was a worry. That was a concern. Now, the goals, the goals that we conceded were really, really poor. Like, really poor. Um, you know, there's no getting away from that. There's no point in beating around the bush. They were really poor, both of them. And unfortunately, that's put us in a position where, you know, we've given ourselves an absolute mountain to climb. And, you know, you just never felt that Arsenal ever had the capability of of turning it around because it just wasn't clicking for us. Mikel Arteta talked a little bit about dominance um, in his post-match comments. He said that we dominated for periods. I thought we had the ball quite a bit, but did we actually make much of it? Did we make that many clear-cut opportunities? There were a couple in the first half that we probably should have scored. And I know Mikel Arteta made that point about the ones that Martinelli uh, of course, missed and, and pointed out that the game could be different at that point. But I guess the big concern for me, as I say, was, again, not the defeat. It was the nature of the goals that we conceded. If you think back to the end of last season, we had we started to develop a problem when people would go long against us, um, when people would drop a ball over the top of our back line. And I think that was something we really suffered from when we didn't have William Saliba in the side because he's so good at turning and running back towards his own goal. He's also dominant in the air. Um, you know, he's he's got a lot of attributes that mean that you can play with that higher line and do it comfortably, knowing that if somebody does go long and drop a ball over the top of you, you have all the tools required to more often than not deal with that threat. But even with him on the pitch yesterday, we didn't look like we were able to deal with that direct long ball over the top. And it was a big, big problem um, for us. You know, it was a... It was a concern. And although the first goal comes from Bruno Fernandes on the edge of the box, the start of that move is a ball over the top. Uh, the second goal comes from a ball over the top that Gabriel miscues. But let's start with the first one. Bruno Fernandes comes inside on his left foot. You're thinking, you know, OK, weaker left foot. You still don't want to give a player of that quality, that kind of time in and around the penalty area. He gets the shot off. Ramsdale's got to save it. He's got to save it. It's as simple as that. There's no dressing this up in any way. Again, not going to beat individuals up today because it is a preseason friendly. And we're going to have to keep saying that during this podcast to remind ourselves of the context of which this game that we're dissecting was played. But he's got to do better for me, Aaron Ramsdale. Um, and then obviously the second goal, long ball over the top. Gabriel gets that horribly, horribly wrong. And I've seen people getting onto Gabriel's back about this. I've seen that like, Yammer in the chat has already gone. Gabriel Magalash is not good enough. That is nonsense. Gabriel Magalash last season was probably in the top three centre-halves in European football in terms of how he competed and how he performed over the entire duration of the season. People started to poke fun at him and, and point in his direction when our defensive record, particularly when Saliba was out, started to really suffer. But ultimately, he was doing how many people's jobs? He was having to clean up and hold Rob Holding's hand to his right for a long period of time. He was having to do the defensive duty that Zinchenko just doesn't do in that system and in that team. And, and I think that the guy was spread too thin. I'm not excusing the error yesterday. It is an error and there's no way of dancing around that, as I say. But to sit there and, saying that, and say that he's not good enough and he's a problem for us when he's been so good over the last couple of seasons, to me, is, is just an, a massive overreaction. And this is why I keep prefacing everything I say with this context, pre-season friendly. You're going to beat up Gabriel Magalash over a pre-season friendly when he was immense last season. I, I just don't understand it. I don't understand it. Um, a few of you sort of commenting uh, on that. Um, what have we got? Uh, across the pond, uh, Moss says, Gabriel, so consistent last year. He made a mistake. We had a very high line there. Uh, Query says, um, Keeps making bad mistakes. Sorry. Uh, Neil Gunner says it's not good to keep seeing these errors preseason or not. Uh, they're too consistent. I agree with that. I agree with that. And and so while I'm saying that we shouldn't ignore the errors and that we need to make sure that we tidy this stuff up going into the new season, all I'm saying is that it doesn't mean that because somebody made one of those errors, they're no longer suitable for the Arsenal team. An Arsenal team that made immense progress last season and at which they were at the heart of. And Gabriel Magalash was one of those players. 
Um, so yeah, and and United, to be fair to them, you know, Bruno Fernandez hits the target, which is you know the basics. That's what he's got to do. But I thought Jaden Sancho for the second one took it really, really well. And for someone who has clearly been lacking in confidence over the last couple of seasons to produce a finish like that, I think deserves praise and credit. So look, you concede those goals on what half an hour, and then um the next one came i think seven or eight minutes after that was it seven minutes after that ultimately gave us a mountain to climb and we were were never going to recover i didn't see anything in arsenal's performance up until that point that gave me confidence that when we did go behind we'd have enough to turn it around you hope that some changes uh, on both sides would maybe change the dynamic of the game in the second half but it just didn't happen um and it didn't happen and it didn't look like happening because arsenal looked to me really really disjointed really disjointed. If I go uh, back to the lineup that Mikel Arteta picked, he started with Ramsdale in goal. Timber uh, got an opportunity to start the game at right back. Gabriel and Saliba with a central defensive pairing uh, with Tommy Yasu playing at left back. The midfield was Rice, Havertz and Odegaard, which is a midfield that many people think is going to start the Premier League season for Arsenal. We're going to come on to that in a bit. And then the front three was made up of Saka from the right, Martinelli from the left and Nketiah this time. Uh, through the middle. But yeah, disjointed. Can't quite put my finger on why. Um, I can tell you why I think we were susceptible to certain tactics. I can tell you why I think we were susceptible to um, damage being caused to us in certain areas of the pitch. And I think that was due to the midfield that Mikel Arteta picked. I think that when you play Tommy Asu on the left side of the defence. Again, I'm not wanting to dig him out, but he is a right-footed player. I'm sorry, people say he's two-footed. Nobody, very few people are, are truly two-footed. He's decent with his left foot, but he does take those extra touches. He does want to check inside in a different way to how Zinchenko would do it or to how Kieran Tini would do it because it's not his natural side for me. And it just disrupts our flow. He hasn't got that rapport with Gabriel Martinelli down that left-hand side either. And you just felt like the left-hand side was a little bit, yeah, not bad, but it wasn't functioning in the same way that it normally does. And that impacted on us being just a little bit disjointed. Let's get on to the elephant in the room, though. The midfield for me was the big bit. This is the big talking point off the back of this game. So we're going to take a really, really short pause um, while you guys uh, fill up the chat with your thoughts on this. And then we're going to discuss that midfield dynamic. We're going to Talk about whether that midfield of Rice, Havertz and Odegaard can work. And you guys will know this is not me jumping on a bandwagon after a preseason friendly defeat. You will know that I've expressed concern ever since we got Kai Havertz in the door about what his role is going to be. No questions about his talent, but I do have a concern about how we're going to deploy him and how that is going to have a knock on effect on the balance of our midfield and subsequently the team. But we're going to take a really, really short pause. Um, and then we'll be back to dissect that in a lot more detail. Welcome back along to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min family. Don't forget, if you're watching us right now on the live stream, leave a like on the video. What are you waiting for? It doesn't cost a thing. Um, it doesn't cost a thing. And it really, really helps. If you're also uh, a freeloader, and what I mean by that is that you're watching us on YouTube, but you're not bloody subscribed, then what are you doing? hit the subscribe button again, doesn't cost a thing and really, really helps as we continue to push towards that next milestone of 30,000 YouTube subscribers. We'd love to get there uh, sooner rather than later. Okay, so Mikel started the game with, as I say, the midfield that I think a lot of people believe is going to be his go-to midfield. I bloody hope it isn't. And, um, and as I've said, this is not me just, you know, wanting to make a thing here. This is not me just going, oh, well, you know, I, I saw this coming and all the rest of it. I, I genuinely, genuinely, um, yeah, genuinely don't think that this works. I, I just don't see how it works, man. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about what was good about Arsenal last season. We talk a lot about what propelled them up to that new level. And I think one of the big components was finally, after years and years of years, having found a balance that worked, a balance that gave us the ability to impact games as an attacking unit and add that extra layer when we went forward in the form of two eights, but also 
it was a midfield that was flexible. It was a midfield that had the ability to kind of shapeshift and morph into something slightly different without the ball. And that meant that we could be more solid defensively and facilitate Zinchenko, for example, who plays in a really specific way. Um, and and to, to kind of disrupt that to me makes no sense. I said to you guys going into the summer that it wasn't about replacing and it wasn't about rebuilding in that central midfield area. For me, it was looking at what you've got, looking at what, what works well and adding pieces that could ensure that we maintain that if and when someone was unavailable. Now, Granite Xhaka was going to go. We all knew that at the back end of last season. That wasn't a surprise. And what I figured Arsenal would do is go out and get someone to come in and replace him. But it needed to be someone that could do both of those jobs. And what do I mean by both of those jobs? It was some, It needed to be someone that could get up and down the pitch, that had the engine to get into the final third and join in with, it, with attacks, occupy defenders, take people away, create space for the forwards, all the rest of it. But it also needed somebody that had the defensive awareness to plug the holes left by the likes of Zinchenko or be able to protect us on the transition, which is a, a, a thing that historically I think Arsenal have struggled with. They've got better, but a big reason of why they got better at that was because they managed to find that better balance in midfield. I, like skills in the chat, believed that Declan Rice was going to come in and that Declan Rice was going to be the Granite Xhaka replacement. And in a lot of people's eyes, that's an upgrade. So that makes a lot of sense. I would have loved to have kept Granite Xhaka as well, but as we've discussed before, that probably wasn't really in Arsenal's hands anymore. It was something that Granit Xhaka wanted. It was something the club had given their word on in the past, and they were always going to let that go through. But we just had to make sure we got a decent feat, and, and we did. But in comes Declan Rice, who for me should play in the position that Xhaka did. And there is, you know, this, this, this willingness or this want from Mikel Arteta to play him at the base of the midfield. Now, I'm fine with that if Thomas Partey is not available. And I'm not really too fussed about the fact that we started with this midfield yesterday because we know that Thomas Partey joined up with the team, uh, you know, really, really late or later than most. We know that he only probably had 20, 30 minutes in the tank in terms of his fitness. So, like, going into this game, I wasn't like, oh, my God, why are you picking that midfield? But what this did do, given that that's the midfield, maybe circumstances dictated we picked, what I did think is, hold on a minute, I am right to have that concern. I am right to be worried about that. And I have every right to feel like we're taking a bit of a gamble by just changing up the balance in our midfield. Kai Havertz, you would prefer Kai Havertz in those advanced midfield positions than you would Granit Xhaka. He scored goals throughout his career. He's created goals throughout his career. In the final third, he's a far, far more effective player. History, statistics, all the rest of it tells us that. But defensively, you would question how much Kai Havertz has in his locker. And people will say, but when I look at his defensive stats, they look great in terms of pressing and duels and tackles one and all the rest of it. For me, it's not even about that. People have accused Kai Havertz of looking lazy, which I think is lazy analysis. It's his language style that makes him come across like that. There are plenty of players throughout the years that you could have leveled that criticism at and then you'd go away look at how much distance they covered and all the rest of it. And you'd say, oh, hold on a minute, I'm wrong here. And and Kai Havertz falls into that bracket. If you go and do the research, you'll see that as well. But what Kai Havertz doesn't have, and you can work on this to a certain point and to a certain degree, but I think a lot of it comes naturally. What he doesn't have, to me, is a defensive instinct in his body. So Granit Xhaka, who there was a lot of debate around what his best position was for a number of years, but he was... Um, at the outset, a defensive midfielder, which means he developed instincts and an awareness and an understanding of where you need to be on a football pitch to prevent attacks materialising against you and to, to cover for people that have gone rogue, if you like, um, you know, going down the flank or, or coming inside or whatever. And so when he was pushed into that eight position, he he, he knew both sides of the game. In fact, he knew the defensive side more. And because of our tactical flexibility and because of his technical ability as an individual player, he was actually able to adapt quite easily. 
I think Declan Rice can do that. I think Declan Rice has more than what Granit Xhaka had in terms of raw attributes to be able to go on and play that position. But the problem is, is that Mikel Arteta either doesn't see him as that or is only utilising him as the six right now in the absence of Thomas Partey. Um, and, and given that Thomas Partey was obviously not ready to join up. Thomas Partey's back in the picture now and should have more than 30 minutes in the tank going into that game against Barcelona. So I think it's going to be really, really important to see how this unfolds over the rest of preseason. What I'll always say about preseason games is selections, particularly at this stage, will be based partly on what you want to do tactically, but partly on fitness as well and where people are at and how many minutes they need. This sports science stuff is really complex. They talk a lot about workloads and, and how much you load on a player, the exposure that they need, et cetera, et cetera. And that can play a big part in your selections in preseason as well. So even if Mikel continues with this midfield, for example, it doesn't mean for certain that that's what he's going to play going forward and into the Premier League season. But it would give us an indication that maybe he thinks this is the way forward. And all the reports we read say that that's what Havertz was brought in to do, was brought in to play as the left eight, that Rice was brought in as a six. And there have been so many suggestions that Thomas Partey will be headed for the headed for the exit door. Now, we didn't do a podcast yesterday, but I was delighted to hear on Friday night when Mikel Arteta sort of reiterated the point that he sees Thomas Partey as part of his plans and doesn't want to lose him. That really, really cheered me up because... You know, I hope it's true, first of all. Um, and I hope that's not something that Arsenal will give way on should a big offer come from Saudi Arabia, for example. But I think it's really important that we keep Thomas Partey. And if we do, then we've got a great midfield staring in front of us. A midfield made up of Partey as the six, Rice as the eight, and Odegaard as the other eight. Odegaard having that little bit more freedom Rice providing that little bit more balance that Granit Xhaka did and and Partey sitting at the base, progressing the ball um, as he has done so brilliantly over the last couple of seasons, with the exception of a few games at the back end of the last one. But that's the midfield Arsenal need to go with for me. And, you know, there's depth to it now because you've got Jorginho. Um, you know, you'd be able to use Rice as the six in the event that Partey picks up an injury, which would give you that little bit more stability maybe. You know, you've got Fabio Vieira, who's still part of the picture, although, yeah, I'm not I'm not massively sure about him at this moment in time. Emil Smith-Rowe, Leandro Trossard has played as an eight. Havertz has played as an eight. So you feel like, um, yeah, you just feel like there will be, there are options there. And when I look at the tools that we have currently and, and, and what we have at our disposal, that for me is the best combination. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it's as simple as that, really. I don't think it's, I don't think it's really that, um, that big a deal. Like, or, or let me rephrase that. Not that big a deal. I, I don't think it's that big a debate or discussion because I think that's by far the best Arsenal midfield. Partey, Rice, Odegaard. It's got balance. It's got power. It's got physicality. It's got technique. It's got everything. You start playing around with one of the eights and putting in another forward, which is ultimately what Kai Havertz really is, and you disrupt the balance. Now, there will be games where that works. For example, you might play a relegation-threatened team at home in the early stages of the season, know that you're going to have 70 75% of the ball, think that you know your, your primary objective is going to be to, to unpick the lock and, and believe that an attack-minded player like Kai Havertz is a better fit on that particular day, but you're not going to go to Old Trafford with this midfield, surely. You're not going to go to uh, the Etihad with this midfield. You're not going to go to Anfield with this midfield. You're not going to go away in the Champions League with that midfield. Surely, surely, surely not. But that brings us on to a kind of wider debate about Kai Havertz because lots of people have been, um, lots of people have been very, what's the word? Uh, very divided, actually, on whether he is someone that we should have signed. As I said a little bit earlier on in the show, in terms of talent, I, I don't think there's a question there about Kai Havertz. I think he's got bags and bags of it. But how do you extract it? And what's the best way in which to utilize him? And for me, it's not as an eight. And again, I'm going to say it again, because I've been saying this before. 
Um, this is not based solely on last night's game. This is a genuine concern that I've had for a little while now. And I think the more I'm watching it, the more I think that I'm, I'm, I'm right there. Um, Cliffo TV says the Havertz experiment will harm our season and Arteta's stubbornness will ruin everything. Uh, let's see what we got here. Um, Simdi says, if you start playing that midfield now, you get no chance for experiments. Yeah, I agree with you that, you know, preseason allows you to experiment. And if you can't experiment in preseason, then when the hell are you going to do it? I get that. But this is, again, this feeds back into the point I made earlier on. If you don't play this friendly against a Premier League rival, nobody cares as much about the outcome. And if nobody cares as much about the outcome, there's less pressure on you as a manager um, to to play in a certain way or to play to win. And instead, you can use preseason for what it's intended for, which is to experiment, to blood people in, to get people's fitness levels up to where they need to be going into a, a Premier League season. Um Skill says, with Havertz and Odegaard in the midfield, we'll get bullied by so many teams. I agree with that. Delon says, people need to understand a Rice and Partey midfield is too defensive for a ball-dominant side. Rice ain't that creative guy. Just watch Xhaka's touches last season. But the Rice, but then what did you bring him in for? What did you pay over £100 million to bring him in for if he can't do the job in that midfield? He needs to be able to do that job in the midfield for Arsenal to have their best midfield, in my opinion. And when Granit Xhaka started in that role, we all used to say the same thing. He looks uncomfortable. He looks out of his depth. What is he doing so far forward? All the rest of it. And within a few months, he had really taken that role on and learned it brilliantly, putting him in a point where he then became Arsenal's, you know, one of Arsenal's most consistent players, one of Arsenal's most important players, and one of the first names on the team sheet every single week. Just going back to yesterday, um, Ruel says uh, the problem yesterday was that Rice ran out of juice really early. That's another thing that you got you got to take into consideration as well. He did um, run out of steam quite quickly, Declan Rice. But again, you know, he was one of the players that joined up with the squad that little bit later. And so you've got to be aware of these things. And again, it's why when you talk about a game like this, there are so many caveats. But just as a wider, broader point, even putting last night to one side, I think that that midfield of of Rice, Odegaard and Havertz is way too flimsy and particularly away from home is going to be a problem for us. And I say that because also when I talk about the guys sort of around whoever's playing at the base, not having that defensive awareness it was kind of proven yesterday when you was were ending up looking at Declan Rice and seeing him sort of in a position where he's, he's not sure whether to go right or left. He's got too big a space to try and cover, meaning he doesn't get to anything. And then Man United get in on your back four. And when you've got quality like Man United obviously do, that can be a big, big problem for you. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. The balance is off and it needs to be addressed um, is, is my big takeaway from yesterday. I also just wanted to touch on uh, Eddie and Ketia as well. Um, Mikel Arteta sort of reacting to a question about following Balogun, which he was always going to get being in the United States, wasn't he? Uh, not being involved yesterday. Um, and Mikel talked about sort of the load that he needs to put on certain players. I know a lot of people watched Eddie and Ketia last night and now feel even more strongly about the idea of him being maybe sold and following Balogun, being given an opportunity to prove what he can do, having enjoyed such a really, really good uh, season last time out. I'm, it, it's really hard to say because Eddie rarely gets a run in the team. He had one run in the team last season when Jesus was out and he did fairly well, fairly well. I think that's the right way to put it. But since then, he's been in and out. He's been coming off the bench as a sub and he's been playing 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, a bit in preseason, but nothing major. So it's really, really difficult to to make too much judgments or, or too much judgment or, or to pass too much judgment, I should say, on him. The problem is as well, though, people go, oh, well, sell Eddie Nketiah or sell this guy or sell that guy. Someone's got to come and stump up the money. If somebody comes in and says, we'll have Eddie Nketiah for 30 odd million, then you've got something to think about. But until then, you don't. You literally don't have anything to think about. You have a player there that is a part of your squad 
and um, a player there that if he wasn't part of the plan in some way, shape or form, wouldn't have got that contract that he did not so long ago, last summer, if my memory serves me correctly. The contract, on the other hand, works in a good way in terms of if you do want to sell him, you now have that protection of his value because he was going to go for free and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, I, I think the Eddie and Ketia Balogun debate is one that's going to continue to rumble on now over the course of the summer. I don't really think that Eddie and Ketia has shown too much to kind of completely close the door on Balogun to the point where Mikel Arteta will not even in, entertain the idea of perhaps moving Enketia on first. I think this is still in the balance. I think this is still one that Mikel Arteta is probably uh, pondering all over um, and, and not really, or pondering over and not really sure what his next move should be. I also wanted to touch on, on Kieran Tierney. Um, you know, he's not started to get the game again. Tommy Asu's been preferred to him at left back. Again, it might be due to minutes and, and other factors, but it seems like Tommy and Kivior now are both ahead of him um, in the pecking order for left back. And again, that's a concern. If you're if you're Kieran Tierney, I beg your pardon, that's a concern because, you know, let, let's be honest, he's not a worse left back than some of those guys. The, the issue that you've got is that clearly there is something very, very specific that Mikel Arteta wants from his left back that he does not believe that Kieran Tierney has at this moment in time, in which case you might as well sell him. You might as well sell him. Now, the problem with Kieran Tierney historically has been injuries, and that has meant that he's not got a look in much, and it's meant we've had to get used to life without him, and maybe it caused the management team and the club to maybe lose faith in him. Injury-wise, he was better last season, but he also didn't play a lot, and, and that could be a part of of why he was able to stay, steer relatively clear of injuries and and be available a lot more at a time. But like we talked a bit about it last week, the Kieran Tierney transfer chat has kind of died down a little bit. It's been a bit quieter. But, you know, when you look at things like this, it only kind of strengthens the case from his side of, well, if you're not going to play me, I want to go. And if he wants to go and a suitable offer comes in, it would be stupid, in my opinion, not to accept it. Just wanted to touch on Thomas Partey's position as well when he came on the pitch. What was he? Where was he playing? Well, no, not when he came on the pitch, when Jorginho came on the pitch. Uh, because Thomas Partey came on uh, on 59 minutes. And then on 72 minutes, Jorginho came on. And when Jorginho came on, it was as if Partey went to like a kind of right back role. It was so weird. Um, I couldn't really make sense of it, to be honest with you. And um and yeah, it's uh, again, is it just about fitness? Again, is it just about rotations? Again, is it just about, you know, getting through these types of games and, and building your way up to the last couple of preseason friendlies that will give us a real opportunity to get going? Um, yeah, it's it was weird. It looked like he was playing at right back. And I know he did it a little bit last season at the end, but it didn't work then for me and it didn't work now either. Uh, we'll have to see. A lot of you sort of, referencing the fact that there was a lot of chat, wasn't there, about Caicedo potentially coming in and being able to play at right back as well. But then we brought Urian Timber in too. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's all weird. It's all weird. I'm not saying Partey's never played there before or can't play there, but it's certainly not his best position. Why we're playing him there, I just don't know. Let's take this super chat from Aya. Uh, thank you so, so much, mate, for your very, very kind donation to the channel. He says, Arteta seriously needs to stop being sentimental and cut his losses with Eddie. It's been three seasons and he hasn't improved or improved the team. Just going back to the Enketia uh, debate there. Thank you so much, mate, for your uh, nice uh, comment there and uh, for your super chat donation. Of course, it goes without saying. Um, a couple of other talking points. Uh, Bukayo Saka was the probably the one Arsenal player that comes away from actually two. Arsenal players, one of the two Arsenal players that comes away from this game with credit. I thought he looked a threat every time he got the ball. I thought he gave Luke Shaw a torrid time. Um, but, you know, as we were speaking about earlier, he's going to need protection. And that's going to have to come from the officials because he's literally going to get lumps kicked out of him every single week. And again, it kind of goes back to the point about needing that bit of strength in depth. Because if you have that and you have someone that can come into the team, then all of a sudden you can, you know, you can take. Um, you can take Bukayo Saka off in a game after 70 minutes and know that your team's level's not going to drop dramatically 
And therefore, instead of playing 90 every week, he's then playing 65, 70. When the games are won, you take him off, you replace him, you maintain the level as best as you can. And you you worry about wrapping him up in cotton wool for the next one. So, yeah, really uh, impressed by him again. But, you know, he's our star boy and we've just uh, become accustomed to that, haven't we? Urien Timber was the other player that I wanted to mention that I think has done really, really well. Um, looks really comfortable. You know, we talked about it after the MLS All-Stars game. Really comfortable in possession. Uh, really classy. Real good football brain. You can see it. Sees a pass. Always wants to break the lines, etc. I thought he did some really good things, particularly um, coming in off that right-hand side into um, into that midfield inverted role. Uh, Mikel Arteta obviously spoke in his press conference and he said that he wants to see the team hurting um, and see how the team reacts. It was a very, very short press conference from Mikel Arteta, one in which he didn't really give too much away, but he reiterated the point that he doesn't want to lose. He talked about there being some positives. Um, and one of the questions around the midfields, um, led to him basically saying, well, if this midfield plays together 50 odd times or whatever he said, that will obviously improve it and, and make it better. That, mean, that, that means you've got people now going, oh my God, our midfield is going to take 55 games to, to get up to speed, which is a bit of an overreaction. But the point he's making is that the more they play together, the more accustomed to one another they'll become, the more they'll understand the movements of one another, where the ball's going to drop, where the ball's going to come, um, and, and, you know, as those relationships develop, then that, of course, should improve. I think that goes without saying, if we're being honest. Um, right. So um, just looking through my notes, is there anything else that I missed? Because um, I missed something off my notes the other day uh, and it really annoyed me because I'd hit the stop recording button and then realized I missed it. What we will do, though, is just quickly chat about the penalty shootout. Although, I mean, is there much to chat about? Odegaard scored, Trossard scored, uh, Fabio Vieira missed, uh, Jorginho scored, but of course Man United as a result uh, running out 5-3 winners having taken the first penalty. So um, yeah, that was, um, that was that. I mean, why you play a penalty shootout after you've just lost the game 2-0 is beyond me and is another prime example of when I talk about how like there is when we go on these tours, there's too much like pageantry and all this around the games. And like, it just doesn't feel authentic. Right. And a penalty shootout after a game you've just lost is ridiculous. It's about as ridiculous as it comes. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my little mini rant on that out of the way. Uh, get your questions into the live chat. Going to take a very, very brief pause once again, and then we're going to uh, dive into some of those for the remainder of the show. If you haven't done so already, leave a like on the video, just a hundred likes on the board, but there are, hundreds of you with me live right now. There's no reason why we shouldn't have at least three, 400 likes on the board. So please do leave a like. It really, really does help. Right, short pause, and we'll be back going through your questions. Welcome back to the Chronicles of A Guna, the Arsenal podcast, part of uh, the 90 uh, min football network. Uh, lots of you get annoyed at me basically for saying, oh, well, the penalty shootout is a joke and saying, well, it's good practice and all the rest of it. Practice it on the training ground, for God's sake. Like, it's not really practice for a real pressured situation, is it? Because A, you've already bloody lost the game, so it means jack shit. And B, you're never going to resemble the pressure, the environment, that you would have to cope with in a big game where it really, really mattered in a preseason friendly. You you cannot recreate that atmosphere. Technique is about penalties. It's about composure. Uh, technique is about penalties. Penalties are about technique. Penalties are about composure. Penalties are about blocking out the noise. And even then, when you try and do all of that, sometimes the occasion can get to you. But if you keep doing the right things over and over again, you make it into a habit, then hopefully you'll have that mental strength to be able to block out the circumstances and everything else that's going on around you when it really, really matters. But I just think it was completely bloody unnecessary. It was that classic thing of it's not sport, it's sports entertainment. That's what putting on a cheap penalty shootout that means nothing is basically is catering to the sports entertainment crew rather than the actual sport itself. But anyway, maybe I'm just old fashioned. Um, right. Let's get some of these questions then. Let's take this one from Odra Deck, who says, do you think Arteta 
is saving Balogun for the Barcelona game as it is a bigger, better international showcase for a potential sale? Really, really interesting. Uh, interesting question that. I don't know. I don't know that Arteta's thought about it that deeply. Um, I don't know that Arsenal have this like hidden agenda, if you like, to uh, make sure that they put him out or wheel him out against a side that there's going to be loads of global attention on in a game where there's going to be loads of global attention in order to sort of drive that sale. But he needs minutes. He needs minutes. And I think he's probably going to get them based on what Arteta said post-game about the workloads and all the rest of it. Now, if he doesn't get them, if he doesn't get minutes against Barcelona, if he doesn't get minutes in the Emirates Cup against Monaco, and he doesn't get minutes, you know, by then, then you got to start to ask questions as to whether he has a future at this football club. And in which case, sell him to the highest bidder. But we'll see. We'll see on that. Um, what else have we got? Uh... P.S. Midi says, uh, why not go after Dybala? He's quite cheap now. He's just so injury prone. Um, so, so injury prone, which would put me off. Nick says, thoughts on them being made to train after the game. They, a lot of the time, mate, they'll do a warm down session, uh, which takes place once all the fans have left the stadium. I've seen it many times, um, sort of from the press box when I'm still wrapping up work or a broadcast and the players come back out. And sometimes it is as complex as a full training session. Uh, when you're sort of watching it from the distance. So, yeah, it is um, it is one of those things. Um, Brandon Enoch said the, the penalty shootout was Arteta's idea. Look it up, dude. I don't care whose idea it was. It's still a stupid idea. Whether it's Arteta's, whether it's Eric Ten Hag's, whether it's, you know, the, the you know, the, the sort of organisers wanting to highlight this, you know, highlight their game and, and the sport being played in their place. I don't care who's responsible for it. Um, I did hear rumours that Arteta was responsible for it. I didn't know that that had been confirmed, but regardless, my opinion doesn't change uh, because I still think it's a joke and I still think that it's a pointless exercise in a game like this and something that, you know, just doesn't really have a place, to be honest. A, a fake penalty shootout for nothing. Anyway, uh, right, what else have we got? Uh, MM says... How do you feel about our press? Because I felt it wasn't as effective, especially with Eddie and Havertz leading the press. Yeah, um, it's never as effective with Eddie as it is with Jesus. Like we, I think we've established that over the last year or so. Um, as for Havertz, I think he's got to do a bit more. But then I look at Havertz's pressing stats and I'm always like pleasantly surprised by the numbers. They don't always stack up to what I thought I saw with the eye. Um, so I've got to be a little bit careful about that one, about sort of really going in on him about that. Uh, but yeah, the press was a little bit off. But again, fitness, isn't it? Fitness. Um, Adrian says, thoughts on Fabio Vieira not having the fire slash cojones to represent the canon. There's a very, very similar question from Neil Gunner, who says, Fabio Vieira, do you think the shirt is too heavy? Um, you know, at this moment in time, it's a, it's a fair point to raise and I understand why there are people thinking well this is not going to work but also I still think I'm willing to give him a little bit more time I think this season is the season in which Fabio Vieira needs to show us more um, when he's going to get to do that I don't know probably domestic cups will be his best bet at this stage because I don't think he makes our Premier League side and I don't think he should be considered as a, a, a sort of starter or anything like that in the um in the Champions League. So I think there is cause for concern with Fabio Vieira, but I'm willing to give him a little bit more time. Just a little bit. Um well I say a little bit up until the end of, of this season. And if it doesn't work out then then I think we need to we need to move on. Uh we need to move on. Um lots of Havertz questions. We we touched on Havertz in a lot of detail a little bit earlier on. Uh, so I'm not going to go over that again just because I'm conscious of time. But uh, across the pond, Sports Talk says, is Chelsea getting kudos, Harry? Would be nice to grab him. We hint it and then they go after him. Well, there were reports during the rounds yesterday that Chelsea had agreed personal terms with Mohamed Kudus. But also those reports did continue to say or continue on to say that Arsenal remained interested in the player. I think he'd be a good signing for the reasons that we discussed the other day can play from that right and support Saka when you need him to. 
also has that versatility to play in other positions as well, which is obviously uh, an added bonus. But, you know, there'll always be competition. It feels like this summer, more than any other summer, there is a very small pool of players that the, the big Premier League clubs are going after, which is meaning that they're having to go up against one another for targets, which means the dream scenario for the club selling because it means that they can spark bidding wars and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll see on that. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, I think I'm going to take one more before I uh, bid you all farewell. I'm really lagging today. Really lagging. Like I think I'm just going to go over to my sofa and just watch TV all day, uh, to be honest, which I almost feel guilty about doing now at my age. It's like you're an adult now. You've got children. You've got a responsibility. You should be using the time to good effect. But today I really need one of those days where I just sit on the couch and do nothing. Um, nothing physical anyway. Um, what have we got there? Uh, who do you see in midfield versus Nottingham Forest? It's, it's difficult to say, mate. Like We're going to kind of have to wait, I think, until we've seen all of the preseason games to try and come up with a prediction on that. If it were me, as I said earlier, it would be Partey, Rice and Odegaard. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was Rice, um, Havertz and Odegaard that start on the opening day. And again, like that could be one of those days where you get away with it. But then that doesn't mean that it's something that I want to see every week moving forward. So this is where there's a bit of a grey area in this debate and in this discussion. I think there will be games where you want it to be a bit more attack-minded, the midfield, and you're happy for it to be weighted that way. But there'll be other times where it needs to be weighted the other way. And is Mikel Arteta going to prefer consistency, which served us so well last season? Or is he going to um, be rotating far more actively, which is a, a challenge in itself because it's not something that he as a manager has ever been able to do effectively, largely because he never had the squad to do it, but also it's a new experience for him. And I think it's a real fine art. Um, you either need to be really, really good at it, knowing what you can afford to leave out, knowing what components need to be maintained and which ones you can kind of tinker with, or you need to have an unbelievable group of players like Pep Guardiola's had over the last few years. And I don't think we're quite at that level in terms of our squad. Uh, so it's going to rely heavily upon how good Mikel Arteta is at maintaining that balance and making sure that we don't lose our core values and core strengths when we make two, three, sometimes four, five changes. But yeah, um, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, we'll have to wait and see on, on what that midfield is going to look like. But for me, not losing my mind about the fact that we were beaten by Man United. It hurts that little bit more because it was them. And again, I don't want to be playing them in preseason. Made that very, very clear. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you learn more from the games that you lose. And I hope that this has sort of prompted the right questions for Mikel Arteta within his own mind. I hope that this has, you know, sparked a debate sort of within the coaching staff with regards to what the right balance in midfield looks like um and uh and yeah we go again uh, against barcelona in a few days time and uh yeah don't lose your mind over it don't lose your shit there's a lot of talking points to take away from the game as i said and there's a lot of valid debates to be had around it and i think we've done quite a few of those on this episode of the podcast but don't let it spoil your sunday man like it's preseason friendly who cares United won their cup final. Let them enjoy it. Anyway, uh, I'll see you all tomorrow, unless something major breaks later on. I always say this now, but unless something major breaks, I'll be back tomorrow with another bit of content. Like, subscribe, all of the rest of it, and I'll see you all soon. Until then, take care. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.